this evening, I'm pretty excited actually. We're just going to get right into the scripture. We are continuing on in this three week, or not a three week, this is the third week of a series in which we're looking at a year in the life of Jesus. And the way that we're doing that is looking at John chapters 2 through 4, which is about a chronological year in Jesus' life. And I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm having more and more fun as these messages go along because we're seeing some recurring themes. I, I think that's the beauty of sitting down with one piece of scripture and, and working through it is that we're, we're seeing some of the same key words and I'm trying to point those things out to you. Now I understand if you've missed a few weeks that you know I may be referring to things that you're not picking up on. Well, our sermons are on the web now, so you can check those out and catch up before you come. And I'll try and explain it as we go along. Um, but we're going to be in, in John chapter 3 today, verses 1 to 21, the same scriptures that Charlie just read. But before we dive in, I'd like to ask us to imagine something. And you can close your eyes if you want. It's just a short little thing. The year is 28 A.D. You're in your 30s. Some of you are saying, yes, young again. Some of you are saying, that's old. But you're in your 30s. 28 AD. And sorry, ladies, but you are a man. You were raised in a wealthy, well-respected family. You've gone to Bible school since you're just a tyke. And by the age of 13, you've graduated your formal education in Torah. And by now, you have most of the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Memorized in Hebrew, of course. Most of your friends at age 13 are now beginning to enter the workforce. They've done their mandatory education and they're going to work, probably learning the trades of their fathers or their relatives. But you are gifted and you're from a wealthy family with lots of status. And you've been chosen to study more scripture. You become the disciple of a well-known Pharisee and your passion and zeal for God begins to grow. Eventually, your scholarship and status earn you the right to become a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, an interpreter of the law. Indeed, you are one of the ruling elites among your people. Now, let's come back to 2009. The person that we were just imagining ourselves as is quite possibly very similar to a man we're going to meet tonight. Named Nicodemus. Named Nicodemus. I'm going to read the first three verses of uh, this scripture. We're going to meet Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler among his people. This guy had status. He wasn't just a Pharisee, but he was born into a, a family of high stature. He was one of the ruling elite, high-ranking scholar, high up in the Jewish religion. And he was in league, as, a, as one of these rulers, one of these Pharisees, he's in league with the very people that Jesus is kind of ticking off as of late. Now last week we looked at the end of chapter 2, and Jesus goes into the temple and basically calls their practices corrupt. 
And it was the ruling elite that began to get upset at him. Why? Well, the temple is the center of the Jewish religion. It's also the center of their culture. But most importantly to Nicodemus, perhaps, is it's the center of his authority. He was the ruler of that temple system. So, he comes to see Jesus at night. Now, I'm going to suggest that there's two reasons why John puts that detail in the Scripture. The first reason is because he came at night. Why did he come at night? Because he has a rep to protect. He has a reputation. He is in league with these other rulers, and if they see him cavorting with Jesus, they might get the wrong idea. You see, Jesus wasn't well liked by them. At the same time, we notice something about Nicodemus. He is drawn to Jesus for some reason. In fact, he approaches him and calls him rabbi, which is a very respectful term. Much more respectful than Nicodemus' peers would have called Jesus. So there's something about Jesus that has drawn him in. Well, I said there's a second reason that John puts this detail about night in there. But I'm going to make you wait on that. We'll get to it at the end of the message. Uh, But you just remember that one. So two reasons. The one is he wants to avoid being seen by his peers. He comes at night. So John introduces this guy, Nicodemus, to us. Pharisee, ruling elite. But I think there's another detail about Nicodemus he wants us to see. And in order to dig behind that, we need to look at the end of chapter 2. Let me read it for you real quickly in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, talking about Jesus, he was at the Passover during the feast, and many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus is at the Passover, and apparently doing lots of signs. In fact, at the end of John's Gospel, he says, you know, I just wrote a little bit, I'm paraphrasing, but if I wrote everything that Jesus did, it would take more books than to cover the earth. Okay, so Jesus is doing these signs, and people are believing in him because of the signs. You know, on face value, that's pretty cool, right? Well, Jesus is saying, no. Belief just in my signs is insufficient belief. Hmm. Okay. I think that what's happening here is we're seeing a challenge on the old cliche that seeing is believing. There's a challenge on the old cliche, seeing is believing. Nicodemus now, John wants us to see, is one of these signs believers. He comes to Jesus and starts talking about the signs that Jesus has done. Well, very interesting response. You come to Jesus, you say, Rabbi, we know. By the way, this we know, I think Nicodemus is tipping his hand that there are more people in his group that think Jesus is special. We know, not I know, we know that no one could do these things you do, these signs, unless you're from God. But everybody else stays away. Only Nicodemus comes to Jesus. That's, that's interesting. We'll get back to that. 
Jesus, his response is just, I'll just say it, it's just weird. It's just weird. Nicodemus approaches him, Rabbi talks about these signs, and then Jesus just says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It almost doesn't match up with what Nicodemus is saying. And I think it's because we understand from the previous verses that Jesus knows the heart of people. He knows that Nicodemus is probably there to find out how Jesus does these signs. What authority do you have to do these signs? And Jesus cuts right to the chase. You don't need to know more stuff, Nicodemus. You need to be born again. Now there's an interesting thing about this statement, to be born again. This word again, or uh, born again, is the Greek anothen. And it, it does mean born again. But most often in John's Gospel, it means born from above. And born from above is a really respectful way to say born from God. So, Jesus could be saying to Nicodemus, you need to be born from above. You need to be born from above. It shouldn't really surprise us at all. In John chapter 1, in the prologue, it talks about Jesus coming, and it says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, born from above. It's It's a common theme all throughout John's Gospel. And here He's telling Nicodemus that you need to be born from above. Well, interesting. Nicodemus was this ruler, and status was not won in their day by celebrity or athletic ability or even performance. Does anyone know how you gain status or how you receive status in Jesus' day? You were born with it. You were born with it. If you were born into the right family... You received a certain status. Now, you could lose status by being shamed in public or by making huge mistakes, but if you were born into a certain status, a social status, you could never go higher. And Nicodemus was born at the highest level. And not only that, but he had maintained it. He was a respected teacher, a Pharisee, a ruler among his people. And so, Jesus is telling this guy that you need to be born from above. And he is so full of his own status, that he doesn't even even cross his mind that he would have to be born from above. Look what Nicodemus says in verse 4. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus is seeing, is is interpreting Jesus' statement as born again, and he wants to know how. A person can't enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? Well, no, of course not. Nicodemus is looking for the mechanism how to do it. And I don't know about you, but I confess that a lot of times that's what I'm looking for. God, just tell me what to do next. What are the ten steps to success? What are the seven things I could do? What's the three things I could take home from this message? And do and be closer to God, a better husband, a better father. But there's a funny thing about birth. It's not something you and I can control. I'm looking out here, I'm seeing you were all born, but I doubt you had a say in it. And it's the same thing about being born from above. It's something that happens to us. It's not something that we can control. funny thing about birth is that it's at once a powerful event and a powerless event. Powerful in that every time a new life is born, 
a person comes in with the ability to change things for good or for ill. God gives us that ability to be agents of change. It's why we have any hope in life. Because God says, if you want, you can be my people and I'll help you make changes for the positive, changes for the kingdom in your life here and now. That's what we're here about. It's powerless in that you can't choose anything about it. And let me just tell you a quick story about powerlessness. My wife is cruel and unusual. And uh, actually, I I should preface it with what I did to her. A year ago, I had ACL surgery, and I just started playing softball again. And after my first game, I came home, and I thought it would be funny to come in the house with a long face limping. And she freaked out, and I, I only let it go like a couple seconds. Well, she vowed to get me back, and she connived with, I think, Christine Wasserman. This has Christine's fingerprints all over it. Well, anyway, the other day, I'm in the bathroom with Sophia helping her, and Corey says, Chris, i got to talk to you. And she throws a pregnancy test at me. And it's positive. And I'm like, it's good news, and it is... <laughs> Like Stella's only five months, and I automatically start thinking, do we need a bigger house already? We just moved there, and oh, one of her coworkers is pregnant. I guess she peed on the stick for you or something. I felt absolutely powerless, absolutely powerless. See, that's what happens in birth: is that we are absolutely powerless to do anything about it. We can't choose when we come out or how we come out, but we sure enough do. And that's what Jesus is saying needs to happen Happen to Nicodemus. That is so hard for, for all of us to accept our powerlessness, but especially a person like Nicodemus who was born with high status, who is very intellectually savvy, who is a leader among his people. And you're telling me, Jesus, I can't do anything? It just has to be done to me? So, yeah, that's what Jesus says. Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if you're walking down the street in Jesus' day in Nicodemus' town, and uh, you ask the average bystander, you say, what, what do you know about that Nicodemus guy? You think, uh, you think he'll ever get in the kingdom of heaven? I, I, I almost guarantee people would say, if anyone's getting into the kingdom of heaven, it's that guy. Oh, He's got all the status. He's a teacher of Israel. Oh, that guy's in. And here Jesus is telling him something completely different. He's telling him that none of that stuff really matters as much as this new life from above. talks about being born of water and spirit. A lot of times water is used as a metaphor in Scripture for the Spirit. And in fact, in Ezekiel, which is a prophetic book in the Old Testament, it talks about a day when the Spirit would be given to all people without measure. And they'd be purified in the water and in spirit, and their hearts would be changed so that they would become more amiable to do the things of God. And Jesus is talking about that time coming into existence with His presence on earth. Born of water and the Spirit. And He goes on to say, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Let me just break that down real briefly. In the ancient world, just like today, we believe that like begets like. Here's a quiz. Dogs, when they have babies, what are those babies called? Puppies, cats have, pigs have. 
swine flu. Um, and people have human babies, and we have babies, and we're flawed, and our kids are flawed, and we all sin. And so when we're born from above, it's not just a new behavior, a new outward form. It's a new way of being. And I'm not saying that we become gods. But I am saying that there's a heart change. And we begin. We still have free will and still have the ability to sin all the time. In fact, we do, even after being born again. But there's a new change in the heart which shifts our thinking, which makes us want to do the things of God, which draws us, in, which draws us into being in a place like this on a beautiful day because we want to hear the Word of God. We want to worship God. That is something that... On our own, we just aren't lined up to do. But it's a heart change that does that. Nicodemus must be stunned, and Jesus just keeps on going. I mean, Jesus is really giving it to him here. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Now, funny thing here, John or Jesus is really playing with words. Wind and spirit are the exact same Greek word. Pneuma. Pneuma. Guys, pneumatic tools, right? Who doesn't want to be on a pit crew change? I don't really want. But pneumatic tools are cool because they make lots of noise and they're powerful. Air power. That's what that word comes from. And so wind and spirit are both pneuma in Greek. And so here Jesus is saying, the pneuma blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, the wind blows. And now this is back in a day before meteorology and the double Doppler radar that can tell you it's going to rain in Bellingham at 7.35. It's crazy what they can do now. They didn't have people that said, you know, there's a low pressure system coming in and we're going to have gale force winds over Admiralty Inlet. No. The wind was a mystery. You don't really know where it's coming from. You don't really know where it's going, but you see its effects. I'm no meteorologist, but I've been in Alaska and seen a car door ripped off his hinge when 100 mile an hour winds. I've been on a ship in 45 foot seas because of a Pacific windstorm hundreds of miles away. I may not be able to understand wind, but I see its effects. And Jesus is making the same analogy with the work of the Spirit. You don't, I, I, I don't understand the work of the Spirit, but I know that it happens. I know that the, the Spirit moves where it wishes. I know that in 1997, when I married Corey, we were not going to church. We didn't even have conversations about Jesus. But in 1998, when my enlistment in the Coast Guard was up, we had no clue what we were going to do. And one night, Corey says, Hey Chris, that Bible that you always have on your, on your nightstand, this is it right here. Would you read that to me? And the Spirit blows where it wishes. The Good News Bible. What up? And I found out about a Coast Guard unit in the Bay Area of California. Long shot that I would ever get it. But in our naivety, we just threw up a prayer. We decided we should pray. And we said, if we get that job, we'll take that as a sign that we're supposed to move to California. And the Spirit moves where it wishes. 
And we got that job, and we followed what we thought was God down to California. And the Spirit moves where it wishes. And I found out that within the first year, I was going to be gone almost half the year in training exercises and different things. And within three months, Corey says, listen, something's got to change. She suggests, check this out, that we look for a church. And the Spirit blows where it wishes. We go to this little church, and within a few weeks... I understand that all those years growing up, going to church, I'd never really heard the gospel before. I'm not blaming my church that I grew up in. They talked about the gospel a lot. My ears weren't open to it. My heart wasn't soft to it. But for some reason, this time, for the first time, it clicked. Jesus is alive. Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me enough to have died for me. I gave my life to Christ, and the Spirit blows where it wishes. Months later, I was gone. Corey has this dilemma. Do I go to church without Chris? I mean, she didn't grow up going to church. She drives by the parking lot a few times, gets the guts to go in. Bam! She gives her life to Christ there. And the Spirit blows where it wishes. And the Spirit still blows where it wishes in my life. I'm planning a church with two little kids. That's not what I had in mind. That's not something I can control. And I am loving life because the Spirit blows where it wishes. And that's how it is sometimes with being born from above. It's not something we can grasp or control. We can't define the Spirit's work. We can't explain it. But Nicodemus sure wants to. And he says, how can these things be? And Jesus is just, I think he's fed up. Because what he says next, if he were in public, would be extremely shameful to Nicodemus. But they're not in public. It's at night, and so he can be kind of rough. And he says, you are the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? I don't know what your pew Bible says. I don't think the the is in there. In the Greek, it's in there, and it means something. He doesn't say, you're a teacher. You are the teacher of Israel. You are the top dog, one of the top guys, and you don't get this. You don't understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now check this out. If you're in your pew Bible, I think it says you people, and that's correct. In some other Bibles, it just says you. And you know, when I say, you genie, or you church, I use the same English word, don't I? I use that word, Y-O-U. And it means the same thing. It means plural or singular. But in Spanish, and in French, and Italian, and in Greek, they have different inflected, they have different words for plural. And the Greek word here is a plural word. So, Jesus isn't just saying to Nicodemus, you don't understand these things, you need to be born again. You people, you leaders that think you have it all together, that think that your status and your education and the fact that you're priests or Pharisees is going to do it for you, you don't get it. And then Jesus, it's kind of funny, He says, we speak of what we know. He's, he's going against what Nicodemus says in the beginning where He says, 
We know. See, Nicodemus thinks he knows something. We know that you come from God because you do these signs. Well, Jesus says, well, listen, we know and testify what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one's ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I know about this stuff because I actually came from above. I'm not just born anew from above. I came from above and I kind of know what I'm talking about here. You need to be born again. Jesus confronts the teacher of Israel. And I'm reading through this, I'm studying for this message, and I'm asking myself, I'm just like Nicodemus, so what do we do? So what do we do? I I want to have the so what do we do, so then I can tell you guys what you want to know, which is so what do we do? So what do we do? And the only thing to do is to believe. That's it. I can't, I'm sorry, that's, that's all the text says. To believe. To believe, to believe. Interesting. The word born in here occurs seven times. The word believe in the same passage, seven times. I'm just saying. Believe is also a really common term for John's Gospel. It occurs over 90 times in his Gospel. Believe. Nicodemus wants to know, what do I do? Jesus says, believe. Well, believe in what? And Jesus tells this little thing about Moses being lift, uh, lifting up the serpent. And in the Old Testament, the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were grumbling and complaining, God, why'd you bring us out here? And so they brought a curse on themselves and these snakes were all through their camp killing people. I mean, they are biting them and thousands of people were dying. And so finally, you know, I think they would... One person they would cry out to God, but thousands died. And then they said, God, save us! And so God says, okay, Moses, this is what you do. You make a bronze serpent, you put it on a pole, and when people look at that and have faith in me, then they'll be healed. Okay? And what Jesus is saying is, kind of like that, I'm going to be lifted up. And I'm going to take all the poison of your sin, I'm going to take death on myself. And it's going to crush me. And kill me. And that's what you believe in. That's all that it takes to be born from above. It's accepting our powerlessness. That's really what we need. We need that one to do that thing for us. We need Jesus to be lifted up like that for us, like a bronze serpent on a snake. On a a pole. And here's why. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Oh, why has this become so cliche? It's on signs at every sporting event. Let me read that one more time and pretend like you're hearing it for the first time. I know why it's become cliche. Because it's powerful. It's powerful. God so loved the world. Not just men, not just Jews, 
not just Americans love the world. Men, women, children, all races, all cultures. And he loved, he loved. And that's his motivation for what he's about to do. And what did he do? He gave his only begotten son, Jesus the Christ. So that whoever believes, that trusts in Him, shall not die, but have eternal life. Eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Ah, the mission of Jesus revealed right here. It's a big Sunday. John John 3.16 and John 3.17. The mission of Jesus is to save the world. Ah, that makes sense. To save the world. Grace for all. How do we respond to that? What do we do? What do we learn? Just believe. That's what Jesus is saying. Believe that He did this for us. If Jesus came to save the world, then the world must need saving. I think that's what's behind the lines here. Jesus didn't come to judge the world. But the world's already under judgment. Listen to this. He who believes in Him is not judged. Cool. Ah, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who loves, who does evil, hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be exposed, having been wrought in God. John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the true light which coming into the world enlightens That means bears truth to every man, woman, and child. Light exposes. Truth exposes our true motives. When we step into the light, when we're honest with Jesus, all of our hidden thoughts, past sins, past deeds, it's all on the table before God. It's kind of a scary thing. It's all out there. Nothing hidden. The good news is that we need not be ashamed or afraid to come into the light. Why? Because Jesus took care of it all. And He calls us out of darkness into the light of truth. When we're honest with our brokenness, Jesus is eager to forgive and to give us new birth. Life from above. I don't know about you. Many times I still prefer the darkness with certain things. It's easy to lurk in the shadows, too ashamed, too prideful to allow the searchlight of truth to really dig in. And when we hide in the shadows, that's rebellion. We're fighting a losing battle. John chapter 1 verse 5. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, couldn't overpower it. This isn't some dualism where light is against darkness and they're equal powers. Darkness doesn't have a chance. Darkness doesn't have a chance. The truth penetrates the darkness and exposes us. But at the same time, there is freedom there. There is love there. Christ is taking care of anything we could possibly be ashamed of. Belief is the key then to seeing. Belief that Jesus' death was more than sufficient to cover our sin. His resurrection power more than sufficient to make us new. To make us born from above. So, Nicodemus came at night. One reason was to avoid being seen by his peers. The second is, I think, a literary device in a way. And at this point in the passage, when we're talking about light and darkness, we're supposed to say, wait a minute, Nicodemus came in the night. Is he in the darkness? Nicodemus, this guy who had it all together? What happened to Nicodemus? And we're supposed to ask that question, I think. It's a nice bookends to, uh, to, the, to the thought. Chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 21. I think it's a nice unit. And we start with darkness and we end with this theme of light and darkness. And what happened to Nicodemus? Well, if the, the Gospel of John ended right here, we wouldn't know. And we might be inclined to think, he stayed in the darkness. But the Gospel of John doesn't end here. And we're not going to get to this part for a year or something, so I'll go ahead and you'll forget by then. In John chapter 19, Jesus has been crucified, and He's now dead. And they're taking Him off a cross. And now I'm in verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to Him by night also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. He and Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, got Jesus' body in the daytime, because they're trying to hurry before nightfall. Nightfall would have been the Sabbath. So here he is in the daytime, coming to take care of Jesus, all out in the open, Jesus' own disciples aren't even there. Jesus' own disciples don't even return to faith until after the resurrection. This is before the resurrection. And Nicodemus shows that believing is seeing, not seeing is believing. He believed and became a disciple of Christ, which caused him to see the truth and risk his reputation in the light with Jesus before he, he couldn't have even really understood that Christ would be resurrected. What a surprise for Nicodemus. And I think this is a model of faith. No, if you're human, you're, you're, you're either encountering difficult circumstances or you're going to or you have. And it challenges our faith. And we want to see signs and wonders and we want to have control. We want Jesus just to bust in and make our life good. But those who have true faith believe before they see. I 
I think Nicodemus is a model for us. To believe that we might see. Let's pray. I thank You that You so loved the world, Father, that You sent Your Son, that You Yourself actually came in the flesh, and You gave Your life. Nobody took it. You gave Your life for us. Lord, we confess the difficulty of belief. We've been raised in a culture that says if you can't see it, you can't believe it. But your spirit blows where you will. And your spirit has blown in such a way that for some reason on a sunny Memorial Day weekend, we are here. Encountering You and encountering Your Word. Holy Spirit, would You blow on us. Take us to new depths in our faith. Give us belief to see what we cannot see. For those who have believed a long time, Lord, I pray that You would take them to new depths in their faith to new levels of understanding, new levels of trust, a deeper communion with You. And Lord, for those who may be struggling with whether or not You are even real, whether or not anyone could love somebody else that much, Holy Spirit, I leave that to Your discretion. Would You draw people to Yourself? Draw people to the truth? 